Take your Bibles, please. Turn to John chapter 18. Pastor Dave did a great job to explain the fact that we are jumping ahead in the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. One of our volunteers will help put a Bible in your hand. And if it's a need in your life to have a Bible and you don't have one, please take it as a gift of us, from us to you. Please join me in John chapter 18. You all there? Good morning. I forgot to say that. <laughs> I should welcome, welcome myself to this stage today and welcome you in our church this morning. So, John chapter 18. Let's just get into the story. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew that place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and uh, some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. Jesus said, and Judas and the traitor, the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who it is you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I tell you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had had a sword, drew it and struck the highest priest, the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and they brought him before, they brought him first to Ananias, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known by the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire that he had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Verse 19, Meanwhile, the highest priest questioned Jesus as the, as his, in, about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come to gather together. I have said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearly slapped, nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong, but, but, but I, if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Ananias said him, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing in there, standing there warming himself. So they asked him, 
you aren't one of the, his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, give me the words to say and help us to understand the power of this narrative today. And Lord God, we just want you to do a work in and through this story in our hearts today, we pray. Amen. I had a very interesting last couple days. I, um, in my work as a hospice chaplain, I am also now overseeing the bereavement support or grief support program within the hospice that I work for. And uh, we have a, a two-day training that we go to at the Glendale Adventist Health Center um, for grief training. And I, all my volunteers that lead support groups go to that training. And I thought, well, since I'm the leader of this, maybe I should go and get this training too. And so uh, for the last two days, I've, I've been uh, in this grief and bereavement support training and I, it was a time for me to continue to process not only just professionally what it's about, but um, process my own grief about my dad's passing this last summer. Um, and so it's been a very um, emotional last couple of days for me. Um, and uh, I did most of my preparation for this message before going to that. But last night as I was sitting down and kind of relooking over everything, I thought, there's a lot that I experienced over the last couple of days that's actually very relevant um, to this passage and how it's affecting me. So a couple of takeaways from this experience I had over the last couple of days is that uh, in, my, in my work in the grief area, I've noticed that um, in hospice and in grief work, it's dominated by women. Most people that are working in hospice and most people that go and receive grief support are women. In the training that I was in this last two days, there was four men and like 17 or 18 women in the room. And I remember the first day I was introducing myself to the training uh, person there. She's one of the chaplains at the hospital there. And I just noticed, I said, you know, just an observation I've made in, in my work so far, observing grief and grief support ministry and, and, and programs is, is that that's primarily rooms filled with women. Like men don't go to these groups. And I'm like, I don't know if you can speak into that as, as somebody that has like 25 years of experience doing this. Um, can you tell, tell me what's that about? And um, I was a little disappointed with her response um, because it was, it was kind of flippant. Um, that, um, and I'm like, okay. So I felt very um, out of place as a man in that room. And then second of all, in, in, in the clinical chaplaincy setting, it's primarily interfaith setting. You know what that means? It's it's people from all walks of life, all types of faiths, and you come together and you're meeting the spiritual needs of people that you come in contact with. And, and oftentimes in this world, I, am, I feel like I'm the only Bible-believing person in the room. And I, it starts to kind of get, get to me. And at the end of the day yesterday, they made us do a meditation exercise that was obviously Buddhist. And I, I just sat there. I'm like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to make a scene or anything like that, but... I just sat there through the experience, and I thought, why is it accepted that we do a Buddhist religious practice, but yet if I were to get up and do something spiritual from the Bible or with Jesus in mind, I would be chastised. I, I don't understand that. And so I, it brought up a lot of my own insecurities, my own vulnerabilities, 
in the last couple of days. And I, as I thought about this text, I thought about what happens in this story. I thought, well, gee, there's a lot of insecurity in this. A lot of insecurity in this text. Now, generally speaking, men, I, I'm, I'm just kind of talking out loud with you today, okay, about this. This is very fresh for me. Um, generally speaking, men have a more difficult time interpreting and expressing emotion. Do you agree with that? It, it generally, okay? Um, I, 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 um, I, I honestly believe that men can feel intimidated and insecure in a room full of women to talk about your feelings. Just a thought. Uh, so men typically like shut down and don't say anything in those settings. And I can honestly say that, that I felt that way this last couple of days. There was a time yesterday that I kind of felt compelled to speak up on behalf of men. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I did. I, I spoke up. I won't get into the nitty-gritty of it, but I, I, I felt, you know, in the moment I kind of got, uh, when you do anything confrontational, I don't know if you're like me, but you just, my spirit just started to feel anxious, and I just was shaky, and, and I'm like, uh, and then maybe I'm not communicating this right, and so I apologized, even though I felt like what I was saying was truth, um, about why men don't show up in these groups, and the grief process for men and is different for women. And it was like this moment where they were kind of discounting the grief journey in men. And I, they didn't realize they were doing it, though. So I, I, I think I helped them, uh, the trainers in the, in the moment, understand that. So the reason why this is so big for me right now is because it was obviously something I just experienced yesterday and what I'm kind of in the middle of. As a faith-following, Jesus-centered person, I try to live out my faith in those moments, but I'm not sure if I do it well every time. And yesterday, I don't know if I did it well, um, but I really felt like I needed to say something. So I've entitled this message today, Fickle versus Faithful, because I think that in our life as, as believers, we can be fickle in our faith. And if you were to really take notice of this of this story, we see fickleness in Peter. And when you hear these, this passage preached, and I've heard it preached many times, we, we really bag on Peter. But today, my purpose is not to bag on Peter. My purpose is for us to identify in his insecurity. Because if all of us were true and honest with ourselves and with other people around us, we would say, we're pretty insecure people sometimes. Emotionally. So what does it mean to be fickle? It means to likely change or not have resolution to be not be constant and loyal in affection so is there any connection between being fickle and our emotional and spiritual well-being i often wonder if a person is not able to commit to maybe a long-lasting relationship because they don't have the ability to show emotional vulnerability with the person they want to have relationship with or maybe it's a person's lack of self-esteem. Or perhaps it's a lack of self-awareness of what's really going on inside. And I think Peter, in this story, has all of this happening. And I can't wait to help, help you unpack it from that vantage point. Jesus, though, the story starts with Jesus taking his disciples through this valley, this valley of 
Kidron. And in the Old Testament, this valley is known for the place where David fled from Absalom. And, and it was traditionally known as a place of judgment, which is really interesting. So it's like Jesus is now entering a time of judgment and condemnation for the sins of the whole world. And he ends up in a garden. And it's interesting to note that in the Gospel of John, John does not mention the name of the garden. We all know it as Gethsemane. He doesn't mention Gethsemane, but he really concentrates on garden. And I love this little tidbit fact about the New Testament. In the New Testament, the garden, the word garden is used five times in the entire New Testament. Four out of the five is in the Gospel of John. Two out of five is in this story. So what does that mean? Well, John, I think, is talking about the garden for a reason. He's harking us back to Genesis, right? Genesis started, the world started in a garden. So in chapter 18, verse 1 of John, this is an encounter of good versus evil, hearkening back to Genesis. When the serpent entered into the garden, what did he do? He was the deceiver that deceived Eve to convince Adam to eat of the one thing that God told him not to eat of in the garden. Thus entering sin into the world. So Jesus now enters this garden. And it's if it's if uh, it's hearkening back to that, and he said, "Okay, what do we? It's it's now Jesus entering in with Judas, the ultimate personification of the serpent in Genesis. So Judas is the betrayer, and he he deceived the disciples. Jesus knew what he was doing, but he deceived people, and he walks into the valley." Uh, through the valley, and he goes into the garden, and he, he realizes that it's now his time. Jesus knows what's going on. I love that this is also something that happens with the word garden in, in, in chapter 18, at the very end, remembering that Peter was in the garden with Jesus when they asked him about, wait, aren't you, weren't you with Jesus in the garden? And then in chapter 19, forwarding into the story, Jesus was crucified in a garden. That's what it says in the text. And then chapter 20, verse 15, Mary, after, the, after uh, the time of resurrection, Mary sees Jesus and she thinks he's a gardener. Because they're in a garden. It's interesting to note that history will one day end in another garden. Starts in a garden, ends in a garden city. Revelations 21 and 22. In that garden, there will be no more death, no more curse. And the river of life will flow ceaselessly, and the tree of life will produce a bountiful fruit. Eden was the garden of disobedience and sin. Gethsemane, this garden, was the, a garden of obedience and submission. And heaven is the eternal garden that we get to delight for eternity. The scene also takes place at night. There's significance to that. There's a lot of significance to that. The scene of, is darkness, and it takes place in the garden. And you remember that gar- darkness is a metaphor for evil. In light, in, in Jesus, is in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is portrayed in a metaphor sense as the light, as the true light. And he enters the darkness to suffer and to die to bring the light of salvation. 
This is truly an encounter of good versus evil. So Judas brings with him a cadre of soldiers. The cohort of Roman and the Roman soldiers would have been about 800 men. This was not that. This was a detachment. So there's both Roman and Jewish kind of uh, guard there as well. And they come in and they're carrying torches and lanterns and swords. And it's really interesting to note that this is, I think, John, the underlying message here is that they're bringing, the, they're bringing in a false light to find the light. Not, it's not the true light that they're carrying. Now, this would have been, historians think that this would have been more, in the Passover, in the Passover time, this is when it was taking place, they would think that it would have been more, mostly a full moon in the sky, so they would, wouldn't have need a whole lot of light to see where Jesus was. So I think there's some, some symbolism taking place here. They came to arrest Jesus. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew it was his time to shed his blood for the sins of the world. And I love this. Let's go back to John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist tells everyone that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Another little cool little side note of Jewish history, is that the place that Jesus was born, Bethlehem, was known, the fields outside of Bethlehem was known for where they would raise the lambs that would be slaughtered during Passover. So a quarter of all the, or a whole bunch of the lambs, a quarter million lambs would be slain during Passover. And a majority of those were raised outside of Bethlehem. That's not an accident. Jesus, just imagine if you knew all the suffering that would come to you and yet you faced it head on, as Jesus does in this passage. His faithfulness and obedience to the Father is astonishing to think about, humanly speaking. It's astonishing. He had been praying and he prayed for hours upon hours to prepare his spirit to do that which God the Father has asked him to do in obedience to his will. One of the cool things about this story that kind of stands out that I like, uh, that really interested me was when he said who he was. He says, I am he. And he asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, well, we're looking for Jesus and others. And he says, I am he. Now that could be taken as saying, hey, I'm the, I am, I'm him. That's me. Or it could have a deeper meaning. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The Jewish tradition said that when Moses pronounced the name of God, I am, the Pharaoh fell backwards. Interesting. So he's not only identifying himself as the person, he's also identifying himself as uh, having authority from God, but he's literally saying, I am God. And he had the power of God when he spoke that. And so they all fell down to the ground. 
very powerful. Let's just go back to the significance of the garden in Genesis. Christ is referred to, Paul refers to Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the last Adam. So the last Adam met the enemy in the garden, and he spoke his name and the power of his name in those that fell to the ground. The last Adam came into the garden to triumph and to show his power over evil and darkness, over sin. The first Adam hid, while Jesus, the last Adam, revealed himself completely and openly. Now, in starting in verse 8, he agrees to go with the soldiers. And he asks them to leave the disciples alone. Well, let me go. Let, let these guys alone. Let them go. He wants the disciples to remain safe. And he demonstrated the greater love for which he had spoken in John chapter 15, verse 3, when he said, No one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus had already given that message to his disciples. And now he's living it. Jesus warned that his disciples to go away and, and not let them fall into trouble because of him. But he had already told them that they would scatter. This is interesting. John chapter 16, Jesus tells them that when persecution comes, when it's his time to go, they will get scared and, and be scattered. A time, for, verse 32 says, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. So Jesus told them everything ahead of time, and it's now coming to pass. But Peter remained and wanted to fight and put his own life in danger because of it. He should have obeyed what Jesus said and just let it be and go away, but, but Peter fought back. So the question is, why? Why did he fight back? We know that he's disobeying what Jesus wanted him to do. That Jesus doesn't need protection. He's God. He just said it, that he is God, and they all fell to the ground. So it was like, Peter, what are you doing? Was he doing it for the right reason? He, had the, he used the wrong weapon. He obviously had a wrong motive. I wonder if insecurity had anything to do with it. And he acted out the wrong orders, okay? Think about it. There's a concept in, in uh, coping skill mechanisms in, in psychology that's like the fight, fight or flight. So sometimes when we're insecure and we're scared or we, we have fear, we do... We fight. We fight back in that moment. Yesterday, I had a fight back moment. Okay? I spoke up for men, and, and I felt like I was <laughs> fighting for men. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know if that's what God would have wanted me to do in the moment. That's why I, I'm feeling a little insecure about that today. <laughs> okay? Uh, so Peter fought back, but I don't think he was necessarily fighting back necessarily because he didn't want Jesus to be arrested, I think it was more selfish. I really do. I think it was out of his insecurity, because he didn't want the same thing to happen to him. 
I'm speculating. That's just, that's just me interacting with the text. And Jesus responds. He says, whoa, stop it. Put it down. I am supposed to drink this cup. If you guys remember what this cup is referring to, he's talking about the cup of suffering. Jesus had already explained that to his disciples. That actually has rich, rich and deep theological meaning for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. The cup of suffering. It's a cup of suffering and sorrow. And it's pictured all throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah, chapter 16, verse 7 said, No one will offer food to comfort those who mourn for the dead, not even for a father or a mother, nor will anyone give them a drink to console them. This was kind of a a picture of a story of it. There's suffering happening. We have pain in life. And in my world, and where Jeremiah there was going, is when you lose somebody, when somebody dies. There's suffering and pain. Jesus compared his own sufferings to the cup. He said, you, know, you don't know what you're asking. In, in Mark chapter 10, if you remember this, the, the disciples are arguing, hey, who's going to have the right, you know, the, the closest seat to you on your throne? And, and so Jesus is like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about, okay? I'm going to suffer. Can you drink the cup or be baptized by the baptism that I will be baptized in, okay? Can you do the suffering part? And they said, yeah, we can. <laughs> and Jesus said, well, you better be ready because you will suffer as I suffer. And that's really the image of the cup in the Lord's Supper, isn't it? The cup of suffering. Jesus' blood paid our sin debt. So Peter in the garden is seen as fighting for Jesus. Then hours later, he denies him. This is why I don't think he did it for Jesus. There's the, the insecurity, I think, goes on both sides of the story. Now, in verse 15, we're going to kind of go a little bit faster here. I realize I'm taking a lot of time here. Commentators are mixed as to who the other disciple is in the story when G, uh, John mentions the other disciple. I, I think it's probably safe to say that John himself inserted him into the story, himself into the story as, as the witness here to tell us this story. So Peter is questioned by a servant girl while standing at the door of the house, and then he went into the courtyard to warm himself by the fire. I think it's interesting to note that John tells us that it's cold outside, and there's a need to get warm by the fire. I wonder if this physical way is to show us what Peter was feeling inside, his spirit, emotionally. I wonder if Peter became emotionally and relationally cold towards Jesus. And while that's happening, Jesus is being um, questioned, and a trial comes on the scene here in verse 19. Jesus remains faithful when he's being accused of conspiracy. Jesus here rightly points out that he has always taught openly and in public places. He might have sensed that Ananias was uh, trying to maneuver and accuse him of being a false prophet. Now, in that time frame, if you were to be accused of being a false prophet, it's because you were doing things in secret behind everybody. Okay, like deceiving people secretly. 
And Jesus wasn't doing that. He said, hey, I, I taught up in public. He also knows that the, in Jewish law at the time, interrogators were supposed to um, not force somebody to incriminate themselves, that they needed to have witnesses. And Jesus is like questioning their, their methodology here. We're doing this in the middle of the night. There's no other witnesses here. I am speaking the truth to you. You just don't want to hear it. You ever had that happen in life? <laughs> Somebody speaks the truth, you don't want to hear it because you're trying to get around the rules a little bit. So he, he's demanding for witnesses to be called and asking for, for that. He knows his rights. You know, there's a lot of talk in our world today about rights, our rights as people. Jesus knew he had certain rights legally given to him. He questioned them and asked them the question about it, but he didn't fight for his rights. Okay? It's really interesting to note that he knew what his rights are, but he, he just let it go. Now, in verse 25, we see, we go back out to the, to the scene where, where Peter is, out by the fire, and he's asked again the question, hey, aren't you one of those, this man's disciples? And he said, no, I'm not. And then a third time, verse 26, so what do you think is the underlying reason why Peter caved under pressure? I mean, what is Peter denying anyways? Some may understand that Peter is denying Jesus as the Messiah. But if you really look at it and pay attention, that's not what he's doing. He's denying his own devotion and relationship and association with Jesus. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he deny his association with Jesus after all this time? He claimed, he was like, man... I will live for you, Jesus. This is Peter. He told Jesus multiple times, three times, as a matter of fact, that he would be faithful to him. And yet, he denies him three times. Well, did he deny Jesus, or was he denying himself and his association with Jesus? The first reason, I think it's pretty obvious that he's denying himself and his own relationship with Jesus, his, his identity in Jesus, it's pretty obvious. I think he, didn't, he was scared. He didn't want to be persecuted the way Jesus was being persecuted. He wasn't ready for the cup of suffering that Jesus spoke of. I think that was pretty obvious in the text. I think a less obvious reason is that Peter is insecure. He's emotionally and spiritually insecure. And he did not yet have the spiritual and emotional maturity to have confidence in God's plan. When we have a lack of maturity and, and emotional and spiritual maturity, when it comes to our life, we want to take control of it because we're insecure in God's sovereign plan for our life. It happens. I do it all the time. When we're insecure, we want to take it. Take back the reins. Now, a third reason, because I've been sitting in a grief support thing for the last couple of reasons, it kind of came to me. Maybe he's having a little bit of grief right now. Maybe he's grieving. Anticipatory grief is real. He knew that Jesus was going to die. Mentally, he was told that multiple times. He's, he's starting to see this thing be unfold, unfold in, before him. 
If you've ever seen somebody go through tremendous sickness and pain, you start to think about what it's going to be like if they're not there anymore with you. That's anticipatory grief. So maybe that's a part of what's Peter's going on inside of Peter. I don't know. But his insecurity is seen in his impulsivity and his bad decision-making. He showed his insecurity when it cut off the man's ear in the garden. And he definitely showed it when he denied his own identity in association with Jesus. He was unable to express his emotions openly and honestly in the moment. He's a man. Okay? So the contrast that John is, is, is making in this text is very obvious. Fickle versus faithful. Jesus said, I am. Peter said, I am not. Jesus knew what he was supposed to do. Peter had not yet accepted what Jesus was supposed to do, nor was he emotionally and spiritually prepared for his own suffering. But here's the good news. In the garden that night, you see both guilt and grace happening. Peter was guilty of resisting God's will. Judas was guilty of the worst kind of treachery. The mob itself, the, the soldiers were guilty of rejecting the Son of God and treating him as if he was just a common, area, common criminal. But Jesus is gracious, isn't he? He went into that garden and he surrendered to the Father's will. Jesus had both experienced, at that point, he had experienced emotional and spiritual pain. And he was about to endure physical pain when he goes to the cross to die for us. And he spent hours upon hours in prayer and close relationship with God the Father that he was right, ready to, say, to face this suffering. So what does this narrative teach us today? What kind of emotions have come up this morning? I, I just want you to take note of your emotions this morning. Where do you see yourself in the story? Do you feel spiritually and emotionally vulnerable right now? Insecure? How do you view yourself in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Have you even accepted Jesus as Savior yet? Have you accepted him as, as the good shepherd, as the perfect lamb, as the true light? This is perhaps the day for you to place all of your sin, all of your insecurities, all your emotional baggage, all your pain, all your hurt, and at the feet of Jesus and receive his grace and forgiveness because it's real. Perhaps, as a church, I'm curious, do we truly see ourselves as Jesus' disciples? Will we back down and, and cower in fear and insecurity when our cup of suffering comes? Because there will be a time that it comes. Or will we follow the example of Jesus and remain faithful in obedience to God no matter what comes our way? Will we not be ashamed to associate ourselves with Jesus? 
I hope we would all be able to say we will not be ashamed to call ourselves followers of Christ. So let us content, commit today to live out our lives and our identities in Christ, our insecurities, our emotional vulnerabilities, all of it, that we just give it over to him and say, God, take over our life. Make us secure in you. Help us, God, to remain faithful in times of suffering and in times when we feel vulnerable around the, with the people around us. May we continue to grow spiritually and emotionally that we can become less fickle and more faithful. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? God, in this moment, um, I've been pretty anxious this week. And God, you know all the stuff that's going on in my life and my family. and God, you know all the stuff that's going on in all of our lives in this room. You know us so intimately. So God, in this moment, we ask that you would send your spirit into our lives to just calm our anxieties, calm our fears, calm our insecurities, because we know that you are faithful. And God, we just beg and plead that you would do a, a new and renewing work in our hearts and lives today. Help us grow spiritually to be faithful because of your faithfulness, Jesus, that you laid down your life for us. And you showed so much grace, so much love. God, break us from the inside out and renew us. We pray. Amen.